Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. What has a bigger impact on our brain health, genetics or environment? And if we can't change our genetics, can we change our environment to improve our brain health? Dr. Taryn Clark, a board-certified neurologist with a primary focus on memory and cognitive health, rejoins us on the show to talk about how we can optimize our brain health. As Dr. Clark puts it, genetics may load the gun, but our environment pulls the trigger when it comes to having a healthy brain. Throughout our conversation, Dr. Clark focuses on three specific steps we can take within our environments to help optimize our brain health especially regarding cognitive declines such as dementia, Alzheimer's, and migraines. Dr. Clark points out the benefits of natural alternatives to manufactured medicines that can help improve our brain health. Alternatives include specific vitamins and melatonin, not to mention proper exercise and diet, all of which lend themselves to building healthy habits that help us sustain positive health benefits. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Taryn Clark. Dr. Taryn Clark, welcome back to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. How are you? Fine. Thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really glad that, that you volunteered to come back uh, to talk to us and not about COVID, although I see you know COVID spiking here and there throughout the country. But what I, why I wanted to have you back on was to really talk about your real specialty, which is neurology. And um, so I think uh, if... I'll link to our, our previous conversation, but if you can just kind of give us a, an update on, on how life is for you and, and if your practice has kind of gotten back to normal, because one of the reasons why you ended up getting more involved in COVID is because you have older patients that you deal with that have uh, you know, early onset dementia or Alzheimer's, you know, things of that nature. Exactly. You have such a good memory. That's, that's exactly right. We um, like so many offices, when the pandemic started, we went virtual, I think in um, maybe May, like end of April 2020 or in May. And so some of my patients tried to do that and they had their loved ones helping them, but their age demographic doesn't really lend toward being super techie in yeah. general. Um, and they really missed the contact. And I had probably almost 50% of my patients who just kept calling and saying, pushing off their appointments and saying, when you're in person, we'll come in, but I don't want to do a computer visit. So we opened back up, I think in late July, 2020. So we weren't closed that long. Um, you know, my attitude was if a doctor can't figure out how to keep the space as clean as possible, then, you know, we don't really have any business doing <laughs> what we're doing. So my patients needed the connection they needed to be in person. And so we were able to do that. We didn't have any transmission in our office. You know, we didn't have any problems with that. So um, for us, that social connection 
was really more important than, um, you know, trying to keep an absolute distance between us. So we're doing well. And then, you know, I did end up treating a lot of people with COVID um, who um, had not necessarily been my patients before. So I'm on sabbatical this year. I'm actually revamping my clinic, trying to do a little more proactive approach to brain health. Um, so I'm going to open back up in 2023. But in the meantime, I've still been treating COVID just because there's such a need. And most of the people I'm treating now in their 70s and 80s, they're cruising through. I haven't had, you know, I've only had a handful of people go to the hospital at all. Um, but it, people are doing really well getting through it. So it, it really has mutated to being mild, even in our oldest patients. So I, I think, you know, as much as we try not to talk about COVID, it has taken over our lives. But I really do think if we're looking at the reality of the situation, we're not seeing the, the death and despair that we were, you know, certainly in early 2020. Early on. Yeah. yeah. So actually, that's a, a question I hadn't thought about that, that I wanted to ask you is how has the mental health of your patients been trying to get through this isolation, if you will? Um, because I know that, you know, having, and I know, I, I believe you have younger kids. I think you have three kids, correct? I do. Yep. And so I think mine are younger than, than yours, but, um, it's, it's been really interesting seeing the impacts that COVID has had on them, uh, mentally, um, rather than, than physically. And I wonder how that is for your older patients or people that, really got isolated. Like they couldn't see kids and grandkids. And I, I can't imagine how difficult that much must have been. It was devastating for them. And I saw a huge decline in the memory um, capacity of a lot of my patients, you know, number one um, for maintaining brain health and memory is physical exercise. And so I, I do have a lot of patients who participate in day programs. And so that gives their caregiver a day of respite. They can run errands. They can go to the doctor's office. They can just sit in their house with some peace and quiet and, not have, and have a break from the caregiving duties. All of those were shut down. Um, so they weren't having their socializing and their exercising there. Their caregivers were overwhelmed because it, it is a 24-hour-a-day job. Um, <clears throat> so that was one thing. In, in our area, we even had some walking trails that were um, closed. All the parks were closed. So we took away the two things that are the most important for the dementia patients, which is physical exercise and socializing. Um, and, and that's not even to speak about the caregiver stress. So that was really, really tremendous. And that's what got me really kind of activated and trying to get things opened up um, as safely as we could, as fast as we could, because it was really harming them. We talk about kids being resilient, and I think that's overstated. I don't think the kids are nearly as resilient as we think after having so much of their lives taken. I agree with them. you. I don't have yeah. data to back that up. I've got four little you know, species of my own that, yeah. that, that is my little test pool, if you will. But I, I agree. And I hear it from all the other parents too. Yeah. I mean, they're still, still fearful. You see a lot of kids that, that can't get out of their masks. I mean, there's lots of families walking around and you see a little one that's still wearing a mask and, and they just are scared to take it off. Um, so we can say they're resilient, but even if we assume they're more resilient, um, you know, certainly the other end of the spectrum is not that resilient. Um, and so it, it really, they had a decline in their mental health that ha they've not bounced back from. So, um, you know, depression, isolation in both the patients and their caregivers has been 
really difficult to deal with throughout this time. And, and, and you know, it, and that's not even talking about my patients who are in memory care facilities. That's been, yeah, it's, it's, I can't believe how we isolated the patients in nursing facilities. I think there's more we could have done about their health and still had them more engaged with their families. A lot of people lost loved ones and didn't get to say goodbye or hold a hand. Yeah. I, I would, I remember seeing, um, stories about that on the, you know, national, you know, even national evening news and, uh, just, just heartbreaking. Why don't, if we could step back for a second and have you kind of walk us through, how did you come to specialize in uh, neurology and more, I guess, more specifically with um, dementia or Alzheimer's, if you will? So I, when I went to medical school, I thought I would be a family practice doctor or a pediatrician because I had never been particularly sick. And those are the only two kinds of doctors I'd ever interacted with. So I didn't really have an exposure to many other specialties. And then when I was in medical school, when we were studying the nervous system, I just thought it was so fascinating. And it was interesting because my classmates, my, my best friends in the class, I was like, this is the best. Oh my gosh, don't you love this? And everybody else was like, no, no, I don't like this one. And so I realized, oh, maybe, okay, maybe there's something really here for me because I love this, like the investigation and the mapping and the figuring out where the problem is. And um, and so that's how I decided to go into neurology because I just, the nervous system is so fascinating. I think for a lot of people, they like specialties where you can really fix a problem, you know everything about it. And neurology is the opposite of that. So there's just a lot of insecurity in your knowledge because we just are so far behind with the brain. And so I think I'm kind of comfortable with that. Um, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum is orthopedics. Like you just go in there with like big tools, like yeah, literally you know screwdriver, you fix stuff <laughs> and it's done and it's awesome. Um, so that's why I've liked it. And I, I practiced general neurology um, after my training for the first 10 years of my practice. And then I specialized um, um, into cognition, which ends up really being mostly, as you said, dementias. Um, such as Alzheimer's disease and, and other diseases like that. Um, and that there's, I have a, a really strong family history of dementia, um, both Alzheimer's disease and cerebrovascular dementia. So that was a motivating factor for me. And um, I felt like I maybe had a bit to offer because I had been on the other side of that desk as well um, as a caregiver. Um, and so just understanding really what families are up against I felt like, you know, sharing that knowledge um, was kind of important. So that's how I became specialized, subspecialized in that. And, and I'm more um, interested in not necessarily the medications, which aren't that effective, unfortunately. Um, but I'm really interested in, you know, helping family members change the environment around the person with dementia, change their lifestyle to try to slow things down. Um, so that's been my approach. Yeah, that's... Um... It's what I, I think you kind of put it really interesting about neurology is you have to be comfortable with the unknown. I think your, your example of comparing it against a orthopedic surgeon, is probably spot on. So when it comes to, um, brain health or specifically like a dementia or an Alzheimer's, is it hereditary? Is, has that connection been made? So a large, so genetics plays a role in, in everything. But when you get to be a senior, your brain health is going to be the sum total of your genetics plus every environmental exposure you've had during your lifetime. 
So genetics definitely contributes. And there are some genes that we've identified that we can test for. But there are a lot of hereditary factors that we don't know which gene it's coming through. And we can't test, you know, with a commercially available test. So you've heard it described, and I think it's it's somewhat an apt um, comparison that genetics loads the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. So you can have a loaded gun. You can have bad Wait genetics. Wait a minute. Say that again. That was, that was really, that was a really interesting point. Can you I hate that? to bring up guns right now in, in our current environment, but yeah. so, um, genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. So, you know, inherently a, a loaded gun isn't going to damage anybody unless the trigger gets pulled. So my job as a neurologist specializing in cognitive care, even if people have like, for example, APOE4, some of your listeners may have read about it's, it's um, a commercially available genetic test that we can do. Um, And it's a gene, but we can test for it commercially. Um, You know, our job is to minimize every other environmental exposure. So people don't pull that trigger on those genetics. So and it can be done. I've seen a couple of people come into my clinic with really bad genetics. When I've tested their genetics, I'm shocked that they have two copies of E4 and they're 87 with maybe a very mild memory problem. They should have had signs of dementia at age 80. And here they are seven years past that. And those people are almost always the same. They happen to be, you know, earlier in life, they were running marathons. They're still walking 5Ks at 87. They never had a sweet tooth. So they were doing all these brain optimization strategies just because that was their lifestyle. Um, so, so that's what I focus on is no matter what people's genetics are. And I do test them because I want to kind of see where we're starting. Um, but being sure that we're not adding on with anything else, like a vitamin deficiency with lack of exercise with excess sugar intake, you know, all of those modifications can make a big difference. And, you know, better than waiting till somebody's affected is to change those in the midlife, Um, get 20 or 30 less years of exposure to high sugar to lack of exercise. So, so, so based on what you're, you're saying, I definitely don't want to put words in your mouth, but can, can you, can an individual basically rewire their brain then? Is that, a, is that a, I don't know if that's even the right way to phrase the question or to think about it. I think it's not, I don't think of it as a rewiring. I just think it's all these additive insults to the brain. And so we've got to work hard to not keep piling on insults. Um, you know, one way I explain it to my patients is um, having memory loss is kind of like being in a boat, a rowboat that's filling with water. So one approach would be just to, to bail to bail water, but that's obviously not a solution. That's temporary. And that's not going to solve the problem. The problem is that there's a hole in the rowboat, right? So figure out how the water is getting in. Um, and I think that the simple thinking about, um, it actually plays into migraine too. really every neurological disease is that we've assumed that there's one hole in that rowboat. So in a medication trial, we might drop one medication in that rowboat and see if it fills the hole. Um, and, every medication trial for almost every um, neurological disorder is, you know, we need thousands and thousands of people in a trial to measure that that boat is filling with water a little bit more slowly. And so the reason for that is if you take that rowboat out of the water, there's multiple holes in it. So, um, 
you know, it's not that um, we're rewiring, it's that the genetics as a whole that we probably can't fill at this point, we can't change our genetics, but we can try to fill every other hole. You can change that environment. So it goes back to your, for lack of a better, that gun example, but you can't can't change your genes, but you can certainly change your environment. Exactly. And it, and it goes to, to migraine too. And so I don't know if you wanted to talk about that, but. Um, oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> so one of the, one of the things, and, and I think we've talked about this maybe th- or during our last conversation, but I know that um, most of my audience knows this about me, um, is that I suffer from migraines. And that was the other selfish reason why I wanted to have you back on is because I, I wanted to, to, to pick your brain, if you will, on the science of migraines, because I know that there are a lot of people that are going to be listening to this, um, mainly females. I just drew the short straw, I guess, of being a male and, and having, um, you know, chronic forms of migraines. But, you know, a lot of my audience who are, are women, um, you'll wanted to know about this. And so um, I thought, well, there's no better person to have on than Dr. Clark. So, um, yeah. So why don't, why don't we kind of pivot in, into migraines and how, how that works. Cause it, it's interesting how you made that analogy with the boat. When you pulled the boat out, it has multiple holes and the, the uh, medicine was trying to, you know, target one of those mm-hmm. holes versus the whole thing. Because growing up, I was a Guinea pig. I felt like for all these different medications. And I got to the point probably in my late twenties where I told my doctors, like, I've had enough. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Right. And so we finally found one that worked, which was like, it's called Max, Maxol is the, is the, um, no name, but Ripertristan, you could probably say, I can't night. say any of those either. <laughs> so you're not They're awful. They're, and that's the only one I found that worked 80% of the time when I felt like I had one coming on. Yeah. But you know, I, as I've gotten older and more mature, I know my major triggers and I think that's where it comes back to your point of trying to find the environment because I know it's weather, which I can't control, but right. I can control my sugar intake. Um, I can control, um, you know, the, you know, drinking um, alcohol that, that doesn't affect me. Like I'm very specific on a couple types of beers that I can drink. I could have like a Bud Light, wake up the next morning and felt like I just drank a, you know, case because I was... My head was going to explode, but, um, fortunately bourbon is not one on that list. (laughs) I'm good with bourbon. Um, so yeah, I, migraine is so interesting. It's so common. I'm sure you have a lot of listeners who suffer from migraines and if not chronically and repetitively, you know, um, have had at least one in their lifetime. And if not, at least an aura, um, So it's so common that there are some headache specialists who think that it's actually not a disease state, that it's more of um, an evolutionary protective mechanism. And the reason that they um, posit that is, you know, you may have had this experience, a lot of people do, that it's not always in the time of stress when you get the migraine, it's often right after the stress alleviates that the migraine comes. So classic would be you know, somebody getting through finals week in college and the next day they wake up with a raging migraine and then they're in bed for three days. And so, um, so the thought is that, is that a protective mechanism? You've had the stress and you, your body needs to shut down and it forces you to shut down. Um, and, and I think that 
people who had that theory then had that a little bit reinforced by the fact that sometimes people would get rebound migraines when they were interrupting them with the triptan medications like Maxalt and others. You know, that you could stop that migraine right away, but then it might come back sooner than you would have expected it with your normal, you know, if you're every kind of a month or every three months, you might have one again in a week that your body was needing that shutdown. And instead of having it, you were able to abort the migraine and then push right through. So I think it's, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, so, you know, the, the, the thought was maybe you stop that migraine, but then you do rest that day. Maybe you still take the day off work if you can and relax. I mean, much easier said than done, obviously. So I think that's interesting. Um, I think that in terms of talking about all things at brain health being multifactorial, I think it's just as important in migraine. And so I think that we do the same thing with migraine. We try one medication. We don't control for a lot of other factors that might be important. Um, and I, I'm sure you and, and a lot of your listeners have looked into, you know, some of the kind of natural approaches to migraine. And I wouldn't say they're alternative. I would say they're baseline. Like probably migraineurs should at a baseline be taking riboflavin or vitamin B2. Um, we have a lot of data um, that, that, okay, I'm going to discuss supplements. So you have to discuss with your doctor, <laughs> but I'm not really going to discuss medications. Cause I think that medications are once you're already spiffed up on all the basics, which I think are the supplements. So, mm-hmm. you know, B2 400 milligrams a day, it's been shown to be very effective in, you know, when we're talking about this lessening severity, frequency, duration, really those three. Um, sometimes there's a variability in those, some things, you know, improve two of the three. Um, but, but my approach to that is that we should be taking all of those good things, using them in combination. Um, and then on top of that, we can add an abortive medication like a Maxalt <clears throat> or maybe another preventative medicine like Elevil, Depakote. But some of the supplements and vitamins, the data is as strong as some of these prescription medications. Um, like for Elevil, um, there's studies and amitriptyline is the generic name and it's been generic yeah. forever. So people probably know it as, as amitriptyline. I think it's effective. I have prescribed it a lot for um, prevention of migraines and tension headaches. Um, but melatonin four milligrams a night has been shown to be as effective. Um, and so I look at that, I think, well, I'd rather have somebody taking melatonin, not only because the side effects are less than, and the drug interactions are less amitriptyline does have drug interactions. Um, but melatonin also revs up your immune system. Um, there's also really good studies for melatonin and, um, prevention of Alzheimer's disease, decrease of amyloid in the brain. So, you know, some of these compounds are just so healthy for brain and they hit multiple disease states. So, you know, I think it's really important as a baseline to be taking melatonin, consider B2, um, Magnesium is another one. The studies are really strong for magnesium. You know, as we talk about melatonin being equivalent to the effect we get in Elevil, uh, magnesium is equivalent to the effect we get from prevention with Depakote, which you may have, I, I would assume that in your journey, you've had Depakote or valproic acid. Yes. Um, that's a messy medication, causes birth defects. Um, you know, so if we can avoid some of those medications, and have this good baseline where we've plugged a lot of holes with natural things that our body needs anyway. Um, that is, that's clearly a baseline. And that's what we don't do in studies. You know, none of these studies have, have people taking 
magnesium riboflavin, being sure they're not vitamin D deficient and taking melatonin and then add on, you know, um, yeah. I mean, that was certainly like growing up that like all the things that you're talking about now, thank goodness, like I'm on. And maybe that's part of the reasons why I've probably seen a decline in, um, not only severity, but frequency with, mm-hmm. with mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to like what you're talking, like we were talking about earlier, it's just this physical exercise and social interaction. Yeah. Probably like my best preventative is being on my elliptical four or five days a week. When, when I'm, when I go like for stretches days, or maybe even a week where I'm not doing something like that or some physical exercise like that, I, I can feel it. I think where, where I minds change the most is, is yes, granted the frequency and the severity have kind of declined. What I get, what I notice more is that they cluster together. Like I'll mm. go and get a, I'll, I'll call it like a bad cycle where I'll have like two to three days where I'm like just barely functioning. Right. And that's once you've even taken your max all. Yes. Still, yeah. 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 And, and um, so that's one thing and it's hard to separate um, kind of clusters. And that might speak to that evolutionary mechanism where you need to shut down. Like you're just not going to get around it. You, you're going to have to give in. Um, your migraine is going to win. And that's a bummer. Um, especially, you know, two to three days of, of being in that fog and not feeling great despite the medicines. Um, but that's where, you know, we also need to be careful. You know, some of your listeners may have gotten themselves into a rebound migraine state. I don't know if you've ever gotten into that or, um, sometimes called a medication overuse headache, but I I feel like that sounds judgmental. It's not like, you're overusing it. It's like, you need to use it because your headaches are so bad. Um, but you know, my migraines, headaches in general have this weird phenomenon of rebound, um, to medications that we don't get from like arthritic knee pain. We don't get it anywhere else in the body except the brain. And it's just another indication that it's such a mysterious organ and there's so much going on that we haven't figured out, but you know, even Tylenol Motrin can get people into a rebound where it converts that migraine into a chronic migraine. And then the minute that medicine starts to wash out the headaches back, and even when they're on the medication, it never goes fully away. So they never get back to a pain-free baseline. Um, And detoxing somebody off the pain medicine, once they're in that rebound state is is so difficult to do. And you really have to have, you know, a, a, a neurologist who knows how to deal with rebound state to get you through that and off those medications. Cause it's, it's really hard to undo and it's no fault of, you know, our own. It's, it's just how our brain structures, you know, get used to those medications. Um, especially I would say the, the worst one in terms of prescriptions, um, are furacet and furanol, um, to the point that I never prescribed those, um, for my migraine patients, because I, I feel like I can make anybody in the world an addict in a matter of weeks to that medicine. It's a mix of, of uppers and downers. You know, usually it's, it's depending which one it is, it's like betalbital, which is kind of a downer. Then you've got the caffeine, then you've got a a pain medicine in there. So um, that's a tricky thing to, to get around. Those medicines are just, they're, they're doing so much to the brain that the receptors are going nuts. Nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I am um, actually one of my family office clients um, who I've known for a long time, Jody Zach, who's a PA. 
she really pointed that whole rebound thing out to me years and years ago. Yeah. And when she did that, that's when I really backed off like the Excedrin migraine. Like Absolutely. I, I try like heck to, to not have to take that. At yeah. All. It's, it's the, the migraines just get so used to it so fast and, and it can be really vicious once it gets going. So I'm glad that you knew about that. Um, so you can yeah. watch for it because it just yeah. sneaks up on people. Thank you, Jody. Um, the other thing, <laughs> you know, a couple of times, you know, it, it sounds like you're really in tune in your migraines in terms of evaluating the frequency, severity, duration. Um, and I think that that's one thing I would really encourage your listeners to do. You know, I'm sure their neurologists, their family practice docs, their internists have said, keep a, a migraine journal, keep a headache journal. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, we do it with seizure, like anything that's, um, you know, an infrequent or frequent, actually an intermittent neurological condition, I should say, we want people to keep a journal. And, um, you know, can't reiterate enough how important that is, because these things are subtle. You know, we're looking at studies, and you maybe get a 38% decrease in um, duration of migraines. It's, it's really hard to to realize that unless you're tracking it like we are in a study. And so you have to make yourself a study. You have to have a paper calendar. That's nothing. I mean, I don't even think that you should do it on your phone. I really think it should be a paper calendar that you write out, you know, when the migraine starts, write your pain frequency or your severity on it each day it lasts. Because if, if people are starting to incorporate B2, magnesium, melatonin, and vitamin D is the other one between a thousand and 4,000 international units daily. Um, even if you're in the sun, you probably need vitamin D in addition to that. Um, it's really hard to look back and say, Oh, am I better than I was three or four months ago? And most of these interventions really take three to four months to start preventing the migraines. And so you really have to have that data set for yourself where you can look back and say, well, gosh, I had five days of migraine this month, four months ago, it was six days. Or, you know, and in six months, it's going to be even less. But if you're not writing that down, it's it's really impossible to say, yeah, I think it's better. I think it's less. you got to have the data. Um, and it's data that your doctor can't, you know, collect for you. You have to collect it for yourself. Um, and it's really the only thing to see these subtle trends down um, is being able to look back on that, that calendar and notice which of those things. And and so some people, you, some neurologists might say, try one of these interventions for four months, then try the, then add the second one. So you can really chart it for me. I think they're all important and I think you should just do them all at once. I don't care which one's having the biggest effect. <laughs> I want all of them affecting you at the same time. Um, cause, cause it's a multifactorial approach and I, and they have other, you know, magnesium is also great for dementia. So there's, you know, these things, your brain needs, it needs for very many processes, not just for migraine. So this whole conversation is revolving. I want to kind of bring it back to revolving around brain health. And you actually had a, a video I found online. I think you were doing it for one of the local um, newspapers or something where you actually went through, um, you know, what are the lifestyle choices we can make for optimal brain health? Can you walk us through what some of those are? And you probably already identified some of them, obviously physical activity, social connections, you know, healthy diet, but are there, walk us through like some of those maybe specifics or expand on, you know, those I just mentioned. 
Yeah, yeah. So specifics that you could change today. I mean, I always want to speak in a way that's actionable um, that people can, you know, incorporate. And so if you're already exercising five days a week, awesome. That's the most important thing you can do. If you're not, you have to. It's critically important that you exercise five days a week. And so, um, you know, start out with something small, 15 minutes a day, tie it to something else you do. Um, if it's, you always have coffee, you always read the paper, um, then tie it to that, that you're not going to read the paper until you get back from walking for 15 minutes. If you walk your dog and your dog smells every tree, then you drop your dog off after the walk. And then you go do that walk twice more at a reasonable pace so that you get back to your house and you're feeling like a little bit stuffy when you get in. Um, for brain health, it's really important that people are doing both cardio and resistance exercise. Um, the cardio part is pretty obvious because increasing blood flow to the brain is good for bringing nutrients and oxygen and clearing out toxins. The resistance part isn't as obvious and we don't really know why, but it's borne out in um, scientific studies. So what I usually encourage people to do is if they're, you know, if they walk, I have them tie some calisthenics on at the end of their walk, maybe doing squats. Um, if they're older, you know, not doing like a, a regular pushup, but maybe a modified pushup on, on a, on the kitchen counter or on a table. Um, but incorporating some resistance, even if you're just resisting your own body weight, that's enough, but we've got to do both of those. So that's exercise. It's mandatory. Um, you know, you can imagine that I had some patients that are quite a bit older and they would try to get around. Like, I can't do this. I've got this bum knee. I've got that. I can find an exercise. You can find something there's, for them. There's yeah. chair exercises. You can look it up on YouTube. I mean, there is a way to exercise. Um, so there's no excuses. You have to, it's just a must. It's the foundation of healthy brain. And then right behind that, um, socializing is really important. Um, and so, you know, we had to modify that to even being sure people are socializing on the phone or socializing on the computer. If people want to tie in their exercising to socializing by taking a class or walking with friends, that's kind of a good way to get two done in one. Um, but being sure that we're, we're meeting up with friends and loved ones and at least having conversations um, at a minimum, that, that one's really important. Um, the one that I'm probably the most evangelical about is low sugar. And I'm glad to hear you're already low sugar. It is the poison of our time. It's in everything. The American diet, the typical American diet is so full of sugar. That's why our health is horrible in every way. Um, I just can't say enough about the evils of sugar. <laughs> um, I think people are, are really getting to be aware of this. So I bet a lot of your listeners are already low sugar and Congratulations if you are. It's it's really going to serve you well as you age. Um, but you know, I what I recommend to my patients to start with are just the American Heart Association guidelines for sugar, which for men that's 36 grams a day. For women, it's 24 grams a day. The average American is taking in 80 grams a day of sugar. So most people are at twice what they should be for heart health. And what's good for the heart is good for the brain. Um, you know, would I like people to get all the way to paleo or keto perhaps, but I don't think that's realistic. I think a great first step is aiming towards those AHA guidelines. Um, and you've got to read labels. So for, you know, a week read labels, audit your pantry, 
you know, find some of the offenders that are sneaky ones like granola bars, you know, sometimes those has 12, 13 grams for women. Like that's half of our day. I would rather have a couple pieces of a little dove chocolate <laughs> after a meal um, and enjoy that and savor it than have some of these sources like yogurts. I mean, the flavored yogurts are chock full. There are quite a few Yoplait yogurts, even like Kroger brand yogurts that probably aren't that fantastic that have more sugar than Haagen-Dazs ice cream. So, you know, I'm not here wow, to say- Wow, that's, that's amazing. Cause I, I was just gonna ask or make the point, like there's a lot of things that we eat that are loaded in sugar that we don't even realize. Exactly. And so that's what I want people to try to get out of their diet, things you won't miss. Like you're, so my kids are kind of into this whole thing too. Um, And so when they were a little bit younger, they don't do it anymore because they're teenagers. They don't go to the market with me anymore, but you know, they would be looking for high sugar things and they would run back. Like my daughter found a Kroger brand, Ralph's brand yogurt. It was 45 grams of sugar in a cup of yogurt. I was like, that doesn't fit in anybody's day. And it's just this gunky yogurt. Like I would, so what I want people to do is find those offenders. You know, it's shocking. Some of these things you find that are fortified with sugar, you're not even thinking like wheat bread. Some of the wheat breads have four or five grams of sugar per slice. Sourdough generally doesn't have any. I happen to like sourdough better. So if you are going to eat bread, you know, find one that is not so loaded with sugar Um, and take out those offenders that you won't miss so that you can have your treat that you enjoy, like, you know, have a little bit of ice cream at the end of the day. So what I try to do, you know, I've looked through everything. I know which protein bar doesn't have a lot of sugar. So I'm probably never going to buy a cliff bar because a lot of them are 22 grams of sugar. That's never going to fit in my day. And I don't think it's that exciting. So I have, you know, a five or six gram sugar protein bar. So I don't read the label anymore because I already know what it is. And so I'll kind of do the things I know um, that I eat consistently. And then, you know, my treat would be either a treat, maybe it's a cookie or two, if I get to the end of the day and I haven't had something, or if I get to the end of the day and I haven't had much for sugar, then I'm maybe going to have a glass of wine because I would count the sugar that's in that wine. So, you know, you get, so you don't have to read labels all the time. You only have to read them if it's a new item coming into your pantry. Um, but I, you know, maybe another way to think about it too is, I want people to eat more like it's the 1950s. And what I mean there is I think of my Midwestern grandparents, like they would have treats if they made treats because it was a birthday or they cooked cookies, but they wouldn't be just like sitting in the lobby at the bank having candy or like these, you know, huge Costco cookies that quite frankly aren't good. And we're not thinking about it. We're just munching and they really, they're not even tasty. So you know, ignore the 20 linear feet of sugar at the checkout of the hardware store that wasn't there in the fifties. Um, you know, and just get back to when you have a treat, make, be mindful about it, really savor it. It will fit in your 24, 36 grams a day. If you cut out all the other things that you don't even enjoy. So that's how I'd approach that. So beyond that, there's a ton of supplements, um, that I think are important for brain health. And it's probably, you know, that gets into kind of counseling people individually on, on, you know, what they, what their goals are for brain health. Um, but melatonin again, is part of that. It's part of migraines, it's part of immunity. You know, we were using that for COVID treating people with, with melatonin. So, you know, some of these compounds are helpful in multiple brain issues and, and general health issues. So th- those are my big three. I mean, if I can get people who aren't exercising to exercise, um, and to, 
get people to cut down on their sugar. Those are really, if we're looking at that rowboat, those are two gaping holes in that rowboat. And no matter how many little holes we plug up, it's not going to outpace somebody who doesn't exercise or is just eating a horrible processed, you know, diet of grab and go foods. All the grab and go foods are just so full of sugar, unfortunately. So um, those are really the two to work on and everybody can do that. And there's not going to be a downside to those. Yeah. And listening to, to talk about these in specific and action items, which are great. Cause that's, that's the one thing I love about having people like you on the show is that you provide the listeners, the audience, like things that they can take away today as soon as they, they listen to the show. But I can't help but think that what you're describing goes back to a lot of reading and research that I do on habit and habit stacking. And mm-hmm. I, the first guy I think about is James Clear, Atomic Habit, wrote the book Atomic Habit. He talks a lot about this habit stacking where, and, and you kind of you, you gave a little great example yeah. of, okay, I'm going to go out and walk tonight while I'm talking to, I don't know, my mom or my dad. And so to be able to combine things like that and stack habits, like, okay, well, when I get up in the morning, I'm going to eat, I don't know, whatever healthy it is, you know, while I'm, you know, reading the paper or getting ready. It, it And it's being able to make those connections, just like in the brain, when we're, we're making those protein connections that really stick, that's, 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 to me, it's really fascinating. Yeah. The, the, Habit. I mean, most everything we do is habit. I mean, we respond to habits much more than we think, actually. (laughs) I mean, more than we actively are thinking. Um, So yeah, I think that habit stacking is great. I love street goals for forming new habits because new healthy habits are just so much harder to form than new bad habits. Um, And I, you know, I think as we get through life, it's only harder the later in life we're trying to build new habits. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do like, like the dog ones classic because so many people are walking their dogs, but it's not exercise because <laughs> the dog's just, you know, reading it's morning paper on every tree. So yeah, I love, I mean, I love trying to use the power of habits to really change people's health. And, and I like the street goals because it's a little more forgivable. Um, you know, some you say people- street goal. Can you kind of define that a little bit, Dr. Clark? Yeah. So like a streak would be um, <clears throat> like, I'm going to. In a couple of different ways, you, you can make streaks a bunch of ways, but you could say like, I'm going to wash my face before I go to bed five nights in a row. And then you're going to have a check thing, you know, by your sink five nights in a row. I'm just going to get five nights. And then you get five nights and you're like, okay, now I'm going to do seven. Now I'm going to do 20. It's, it's what Wordle uses to get you addicted. It's what Snapchat uses to get you addicted, right? Kids yes. don't want to lose their streak. They've got a, a streak of 150 days of corresponding with somebody <sighs> Like I got to do it today. I can't let go that streak. So you start with a small streak because, you know, you want to build into it, but once you get your streak going and it's an endless streak now, you know, I've washed my face for every night for 35 nights in a row. Okay. I don't, I'm so tired. I just want to go to bed. Oh, I don't want to lose my streak. I'll just, you know, so that can be motivating too. um, I've seen video game companies suck my kids in that way. For but sure. It, it's super effective. So yeah. if you can utilize it kind of to do a positive thing. Um, so sometimes people, so th- that would be an example of like a street goal. That's just short, straight. You, you also might say, okay, I'm going to, um, my streak is going to be, I'm going to exercise three days a week for four weeks. And then you're going to build. And then the next time you do your streak, it's going to be 
five days a week for four weeks. You, you can build streaks in a bunch of different ways, but they have to be kind of written and checked off in graphics so you can see them. And the bathroom mirror is a perfect place to put your streak. So you Interesting. see it. Yeah. yeah, I've actually, I started that probably about a month ago. And this is going to sound horrible, but my audience knows me pretty well. I think by now <laughs> I had to create this for not yelling at my kids. Oh, that's and, a good one. <laughs> and so for literally since Memorial Day, so we're taping this in mid-July. I've only had one day where I've really like lost my marbles. <laughs> That's impressive because you have triplets, right? Triplets plus one. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. So it's uh it's always a dynamic domino in our, our house. So, well, I will admit the reason I bring up the face one is because I, I don't like washing my face at night. Like how gross is that? But I'm just so lazy at the end of the day. So there, now you know a little bit about me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been just an incredible conversation on, on ways that we can optimize our, our brain health. So let me kind of wrap up with, with the closing question. And I was trying to think of how I was going to spin this because uh, most people know the closing question is, especially for your parents and your, I know you're a mom, what's the best thing about being a parent? And since I know you've been on already and answered that question, I was trying to think of, okay, well, what's my, what's my next closing question? <laughs> Um, and I, and it, sometimes I'll steal from my, from another show, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who, who has a great podcast. And he asked, what is the kindest thing that anyone has done for you? Oh my goodness. That's such a great question. Um, the kindest thing somebody's done for me. Oh my goodness. Oh, I'm trying to. Wow, that is a really tough one to not have ahead of time. <laughs> I know, and, and that's a, and I surprised that on you, and I apologize for that. I, was, and yeah, I, I probably I mean, should have sent that along. I know. I'm trying to think of. Um, I'm even thinking just the kindest thing that somebody's done in the last week. You know, because it would be more top of mind. Um, and I guess you know what I would say in that thing, or in that vein. Kindness and helpfulness, I think when you're in a family end up being so similar. Um, and so I would say recently, the kindest thing is um, I came home and my husband had found my laundry was in the dryer and he folded it, uh, all my laundry for me. <laughs> so, just it's those little things, you know, um, that are that I think of recently, like just those nice little surprises. So. Yeah. And I know you, you've got three kids. And so, and I think being in a family of five, you learn to appreciate those, those little acts of kindness, whether it's you doing something for your husband or your husband doing something for you, especially if your kids do something that's like pure gold. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Taryn Clark, I can't thank you enough for being back on the emotional balance sheet podcast. And, uh, I'm sure I know that you're working, you're on sabbatical right now, working on some additional research around, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's. So, um, I'm sure we're going to have another, uh, conversation in our future about, about that topic as well. But, uh, I can't thank you enough for, for being on the show and providing all this great information on how we can optimize our, our brain health. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's always fun to be on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. 
And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Podcast.